confident, exuberant opening measures of this beautiful work in the South. He wasn't sure what to call it, you know. He said in the South, or please somebody else think of a better title, and he put Alassio in after it, perhaps because he thought people might think it was in the South of England. But he needed to find some way of indicating that this was a celebration of a rather strange, unexpected, and yet in the end, happy holiday in the northern part of Italy, on the Riviera. And it is one of Elgar's most distinguished, I think, most exhilarating works. And as we unfold it, as we take it apart a bit and then put it together again for you, I hope that if you haven't heard it before and you don't know it well, that you will come to appreciate just what a master this man was. It was written a hundred years ago, almost exactly. And so it seems appropriate that at the end of 2004, we should be remembering what a great year 1904 was for Elgar. Not only did he write this work specially for a festival in his honour in London, but later on that year he got his knighthood, and it seemed as if 1904 was one of the special years for him. Now, when you listen to the music that we just played, it seems extraordinary when you then think that it was written in torrential rain. He hoped that he would find courage, strength, to write a new symphony in order to include it in this festival. But when he got to Italy, he was so moody. Elgar was incredible, the way his moods changed. You know, he could be happy and effervescent, and then the next day he could be manically depressed. He reckoned that he would never make the symphony work. There was a letter when he describes how life was he said, Alice and I have been out with a donkey all day up in the woods. The donkey's name is Grecia, a lovely beast. Oh, that donkey, she's a love. I'm going to buy her and ride her from here to Alassio. We are both riotously well and shall never come home. We go to Alassio on Thursday. They'd started the holiday somewhere else. And it was while he was in Alassio, and eventually his daughter came and joined them, that he had the inspiration for this great work. He said one afternoon, he went for a walk, among streams, flowers, hills, the distant snow mountains in one direction and the blue Mediterranean in the other. I was by the side of an old Roman way. A peasant shepherd stood by an old ruin, and in a flash it all came to me, the conflict of armies in that very spot long ago, where now I stood. That becomes really important in the course of the piece, the idea of the old Roman army. The conflict of armies in that very spot long ago. The contrast of the ruin and the shepherd. And then all of a sudden, I came back to reality. In that moment, I had composed the overture. The rest was merely writing it down. And it's written in a most wonderful, masterful way for the orchestra. Let me just play some of that opening for you again. What is that tune that we first hear? It goes by at such a rate, doesn't it? Let's have another listen to it.
So that's how he says, here we are. There's no introduction, we go straight in. The whole feeling of the music is one of exhilaration. A man who is confident about his life. I just wanted to say something else about that tune, and I bet the orchestra don't know this. That tune was actually written many years before, and it appears in the visitor's book of one of his closest friends in Hereford. The organist of Hereford Cathedral, Sinclair, George Sinclair, and Elgar used to stay with them very often, and every time he, he marked his stay by writing in the visitor's book, he would always write a little tune. And of course, famously from the Enigma Variations, the Sinclairs had a famous bulldog, Dan. And this tune that the violas have just played actually appears in the visitor's book with a little note by it, Dan triumphant after a fight. But immediately after that, we hear another melody. Now to me, this melody on the violins is the way he wanted to describe the Mediterranean on one side, the mountains on the other. This is the tune that the violins play. As they play that serene melody, which seems to encourage in its gentle start a, a feeling of the vista, of the horizon, underneath it, the cellos still play Dan. So altogether, that sounds like this. This exuberance goes on and on. Here's another tune, very soon after it, that we hear on the violins and supported by the cellos. One of the interesting things about this music for me is the fact that it's written in this waltz rhythm, superficially. I beat rather slowly, they play rather fast. One, two, three. But it gives a feeling of gait, of going, of confidence in your stride. This wasn't always the way with Elgar. He was sometimes very nervous. His music has a neurotic feel to it that I think is very special and very characteristic of him. But you hardly find it at all in this work. It's written in the key of E-flat major. Now, Elgar said that he wanted to write it in this key because it was the favourite key of the man for whom he wrote the music. This work is dedicated to Frank Schuster, and Schuster lived down in the Thames Valley, near Maidenhead, and it was in his house that Elgar wrote a lot of his music. He was very inspired by the surroundings down in Bray, and Schuster supported him when other people didn't. He was a very wealthy man, and it was he who was the mastermind behind this Covent Garden Festival. It's important to think, you know, that no other composer, perhaps since, but certainly before, had ever had the treatment that Elgar had in 1904. A festival at Covent Garden of three nights dedicated to his music, played by what was obviously, undeniably, and of course still is, the greatest orchestra in the country, the Halle Orchestra. 
conducted by their great music director at the time, the leading German conductor of his day, Dr. Hans Richter. And the fact that everybody got their energies together to put on these three evenings to celebrate his achievements is very, very remarkable. He'd had many years to come, many masterpieces to come, but he'd written so much great music that had, above all, communicated with his people. And I think it was that that gave him this platform and earned him his knighthood. He became a national figure as a result of this occasion. This work in the South was played for the first time in the final concert of that festival in an enormous program. Now, E-flat major for Elgar, he said, it was Schuster's favourite key, and doesn't E-flat always have a warm and joyous feel with a grave, radiating serenity? And I think that's a lovely thing to think about. It was the same key that he wrote his second symphony in. And if any work of his had a grave, radiating serenity, it was that work. And there's something about the sonority of this music that is so peculiarly Elgar. After this exhilarating textures, we then come to a completely different sort of a tune. It's one of those great Elgar tunes that's marked nobilmente, nobly. But it doesn't mean to say that it's slow. It just means that it has a great stride to it. Here it is, played by the violins, supported by the violas. And so on, and on and on it goes, with this great treading gait. Now, that's just a scale, that tune. The notes just descend in stepwise. When he puts it with the resplendent fullness of his own symphony orchestra, what a difference. So that's just a foretaste of what you'll hear when we do the piece all the way through. But you'll never forget that moment. It comes out like a bright light, and it's one of the most significant melodies of the whole work. This level of energy, virtuosity, exuberance, can't, of course, last forever. And Elgar needs to try and find the way to still the music so that he can give us another colour. Italy is full of colours, isn't it? And I think he does this with such skill. It was one of the things that he became a master of after the loud tutti, knowing how to soften and gradually ask fewer instruments to play until you got down to a, a calm mood. Let's hear some of that calm mood. Notice that the violins played this little rocking. Well, this little tiny fragment of a melody started as a game between Elgar and his daughter. They went to see an old church in a village not far from the sea called Molinio. And they thought the sound of the word was so delicious that they used to say it to each other Molinio, Molinio. And in the end, this game produced a tiny melodic fragment in his musical imagination and it became a melody. 
Let's just go on for a moment and you'll hear how the Moglio became more significant. For me, some of the most beautiful, memorable parts of this work are when the music's at its stillest, at its quietest. He shows such sensitivity in the choice of instruments, how he creates his colours. And even there, when the, the moglio, moglio is still gently going on in the clarinets, the tension in the music, the rhythmic excitement, is still underneath it, the double basses and the timpani just pulsing away. But that passage that we've just played is really a bridge it's a funny thing to say, but music has bridges as well as straight roads. And this is a bridge to get us from one place to another. And now we've just come to the part which I would call the second subject proper, which sounds very academic, but it really all it means is that we now have a melody, a musical idea, that is so different from the music that we've heard until this point that it's like a door opening. Now, to me, this music surely was inspired by those lines of Tennyson from his poem called The Daisy, that Elgar actually wrote on the manuscript of this work. See whether I can find them. What hours were thine and mine in lands of palm and southern pine, in lands of palm, of orange blossom, of olive, aloe, and maize and vine? In a way, that passage for me is the most Italianate part of the score. It has that sense of, of long lines basking in the harmony, a sense of freedom in the rhythm. Sometimes it pushes forward, sometimes it comes back, but it always has a feeling of, of joy, full of sunshine. But that sunshine needs its clouds. And after that music, we have a, a lovely passage like to me suggests the afternoon after a last picnic with some nice trills in the orchestra, you know, brushing off the flies. And the music settles down to a sense of stillness, and one wonders where he will go. 
This piece is really in five sections, and we're now nearly the end of the second major section. He takes his themes and he plays with them. He changes their character because he knows where he's going. He knows what he's got in store for us, and he has to get us there. So this little molio molio tune, he changes into something much more dramatic. And the start of this great third section is the most original thing in the work, and it's one of the most astonishing pieces of music that he ever wrote. Let's just hear how it starts. Very unexpected, rather grand, stern, as if it's made in, of granite after all these olive trees and sand dunes. Well, that's his purpose, because that's the bit that I mentioned earlier when he described that lovely walk in the countryside. And he remembers standing on the spot and thinking of the bloodshed, thinking of the conflict, thinking of the coming together of different armies led by the Roman army. He's also in this section, I think, thinking of the relentless march of the Roman will. Now, that melody that we've just played seems to me to suggest something of that epic scale. There's something sinister about it. One of the ways that he creates this sense of what I would call danger, I would say something that's undermining the melody, is what the low instruments do. Let's hear what they do. Notice the bass drum, the cellos and the double basses. It's like they're calling us to order. There's something peremptory about it. But something like that coming underneath the music rather than on the top of it is a very striking and imaginative gesture. You might just be able to hear that underneath this, this motorway of a melody over the top. The drama of this music is something that mattered to him because in the structure, i.e. his formal design, a garden can have a formal design, a piece of music can as well, his formal design thought of this darker music as coming in the centre with sweeter, more traditionally Italian colours at the beginning and the end. And he needed to sustain this idea. And I think that's where the idea of the Roman road came from. And I think he portrayed it in music. This passage goes on a bit longer than one thinks it ought to, but then a Roman road does. trudges its way with strange dissonance in the harmony, with unexpected effects all over the orchestra. And it makes such a contrast, doesn't it, with that, that land of olives, of aloes, of vine and maize that we heard earlier. Now we're in the central part, and he remembers these armies meeting. He remembers the clash. He had a lovely quote 
the drums and the tramplings in this music. And the music is astonishingly dramatic, even melodramatic. You will notice that the percussion has a very powerful role to play, that the orchestra is extended, the highest notes of the violins and the flutes, the lowest notes of the trombones, the bass drum and the tuba. Here it is. This is a far cry from that sweetness, from that afternoon after the picnic music that we heard earlier. But this gives drama to the music. This gives scale. I believe it's this passage that makes this overture much, much more than an overture. I think he was wrong to call it a concert overture. It's more a symphonic poem. It's more a, a work that needs a very important place in a program, not just the beginning for warm up the audience. It needs something more substantial than that in the way it's presented to you all. So, what are these drums and tramplings? Let's just listen to them just once more. I might ask the people who are responsible for being trampled on just to play a little bit slower for us, a little bit calmer, so that we can hear some of the inner workings of the music. The harmony moves very fast, yeah? And it's very chromatic. And on top of that come these body blows, as it were, from the other instruments, at times when you're never quite sure when they're going to come. And he needs to sustain this drama because he has up his sleeve a surprise for us. He was a master. My goodness me, what would he have written if he'd written an opera? He did think about it at the end of his life, you know. So after this ranting, these drums and tramplings, he again needs to fade, he needs to change the colour, because up his sleeve he has what I would call a joker in the pack. He presents us with a stillness, a moonlit evening atmosphere, after all the noise and bustle, and the sound of one viola singing a tune which one imagines he would have heard on the promenade down in Genoa, or something like that, by the side of the ocean. One imagines that somebody said, oh, if you're going to write a piece about Italy, make sure you do my favourite folk song. But actually, he invented it himself. It's not an Italian folk song, it just sounds like a really good one. A canto popolare, the sort of things that we all hear on our holidays in Italy. Now, this tune, which is so instantly recognisable when you hear it, you know, ah, here we are was so widely appreciated after the world premiere in 1904 that Elgar felt that he could earn some money from it. And so he arranged it. He arranged it for organ. He arranged it for clarinet and piano. He arranged it for piano trio, violin and piano, viola and piano. He did all sorts of things to get a little extra money because it was such a lovely tune. But the best thing that he did was to find some words by Shelley, words written many, many years previously, from a poem by Shelley called Ariette for Music, rather appropriately. And in finding words that suited the atmosphere of this tune, he created a very beautiful song. 
So how does he somehow incorporate such a gorgeous melody into this rather bullient, dramatic, melodramatic work? Well, he does this with the skill of a master. Of course, the orchestra plays the tune in a slightly different key, but notice the delicacy of the accompaniment so that you always hear the viola like you hear the voice. Just a foretaste of that lovely interlude and a lovely solo it is for the viola. It's almost that one might think that Elgar was remembering another beautiful work featuring the viola about Italy. Berlioz wrote a symphony, Harold in Italy, and the solo part of Harold in the story of that work is played by the solo viola. I always think of it like Edward in Italy. In the score, there's a lovely Quotation, a land which was the mightiest in its old command and is the loveliest, wherein were cast the men of Rome. Thou art the garden of the world. Those are Byron's words from Child Harold. And this beautiful interlude, moonlight with the glockenspiel just delicately painting the idea of the light on the water, perhaps, I don't know, there's a moment of stillness in this great work. He has to think, how am I going to bring this piece off to a big conclusion? Because the piece in its totality is about 20 minutes. So he goes back to the beginning, recasts all the tunes, but still very recognizably, and we hear all that exuberance, that exhilaration again. And then he has a surprise for us in the middle, before the coda. The coda is brilliant, gets faster, more dynamic, and finishes with a great gesture of triumph. But he has a surprise, and we'll come to what that surprise is in a minute. But I thought we might just go back a little bit and take three or four passages and just show, in my view, what it is that makes Elgar sound like Elgar rather than Wagner, rather than Richard Strauss. How does he sound him? This is very hard to do, but let's try. Think of the beginning, Dan Triumphant. But not with all the instruments, just some of them. See whether you can see which ones aren't playing. Well, it sounds great. The violin's trilling away. You hear Dan's tune triumphantly in the others. But some of, crucially, some of the instruments weren't playing. Now, it's the edge that the brass give to the orchestra. The sound of the horns really enjoying themselves as they go from the bottom part of their tessitura to the top. The percussion just coming in at the end just to say, there's the top of the phrase. These are the sounds that, to me, change this music 
and make it the work of Elgar as opposed to anyone else. Here it is again as he wrote it. The gesture is made whole by using the whole orchestra in the right way. Well, there's another one, I thought, later on, when we're in Molio territory, when we have this little tune that becomes rather wistful. Wistful is something that British composers seem to do better than any other nationality. A strain that isn't quite melancholy, and yet it's not ecstatic. It has a shadow over it. Here's how he might have written it. the notes are there, but there's something crucial missing, and I wonder whether you can sense where it lies. It lies in the middle of the texture. That time, none of the middle instruments really played. All the notes were there on other instruments, but if we now do it again as he wanted it, the addition of the cellos and the violas playing in a very expressive way, the lower woodland instruments, bringing that woody colour to it, the music then takes on, to me, a wistfulness a strain that is peculiarly Edelgar's and no one else's. You see what I mean. But to me, the fact that he knew he needed that inner sound fulfills and finishes the sound, whereas without it, it has charm, but it doesn't have that extra layer of feeling in it. I mentioned a few moments ago that before the brilliant energetic coda that this piece has so exultantly, he has a surprise for us. Now, you remember early on in the work, we played that nobilmente, that that gate of a tune, that wonderful striding confident tune. Well, of course, he knows that if you've got a good tune, you might as well use it. Don't throw it away. So here it is again, a bit later, before the end of the, the work, on the violins, nicely harmonized, and it has a lovely open air feel to it. So we recognise it, it's not as loud as it was the first time, it doesn't have the brass in it, but it's still a sweet, charming melody, rather English, you might say. Well, he didn't write it like that at all, they just played it completely wrong. What Elgar wanted to do was to remind you of that huge, gigantic feeling of space, top of the cliffs, sunny day, wind in your hair sort of feeling 
of the tune when you first heard it, but he wanted to say, never forget it, tuck it inside your heart. Perhaps this is the most sweet, the most poetic moment in this very Italian at work. And what he really wanted us to do was something more like this. be to give it away but you see what I mean that sort of tender sweetness is something very special for Elgar and he could have written this piece and it still would have been a great work but he needn't have put that in he would have been fine without it but as it is it just focuses us all down on this beautiful melody before the maelstrom of the finale he wrote so brilliantly for his orchestras he loved the British orchestras he even dedicated one of his greatest works to the members of the British orchestras. And wouldn't it be wonderful if one day we could have an Elgar festival here in Manchester? As the 150th anniversary of his birth gets nearer and nearer. So having exposed the work for its many characters, its ideas, the way he joins it all together, let's do you a complete performance and see how it strikes you. <laughs> 